It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And you've got the Virtual Bible Study on your computer. It is Thursday night, April 3rd, 2008. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. Uh, my name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, good to be with you tonight for the Virtual Bible Study. It is good to be with you. And, uh, Dad, I look forward to hearing your thoughts tonight, but I also want to hear our listeners, and they can do so by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com or by dialing 877-381-4567. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We want your participation. This is a, a group Bible study over the Internet, and we want you to participate in it. Uh, Jacob, as we usually do, we send out uh, an update earlier today to people on our mailing list to tell them about our topic and to start getting input for the program tonight. If you'd like to be on that update list, by all means, just send us an email to questions at collegeview.com, and you can just put in the subject line, add me to your email update list, and we will do that. Usually about noon or shortly after on Thursdays, we send out uh, an update to our listeners and and tell them what our topic is going to be and ask a couple of questions. And today we sent out a, a message concerning our topic for discussion tonight, which is the eldership, the oversight of local congregations in the eldership. And we asked these questions, and I, I think they're pretty hot topics, Jacob. We're getting a lot of response, and, I, and we're getting some different responses, and it's been it's the kind of thing that brethren have debated back and forth for a long time. We asked two questions. Number one, concerning elders' children. Must an elder have more than one child, and must all of his children be faithful Christians? So our first question pertained to the children of elders. Must an elder have more than one child, and must all of his children be faithful Christian? Question two, if an elder's wife dies... Should he or must he step down from serving as an elder? So if his wife dies, should he or must he step down from being an elder? Those are the questions we sent out. We're going to get to those in the course of our discussion tonight. We'd like your feedback on those questions. If you haven't responded already, please do so. The email address is questions at collegeview.com. Remember the unique spelling of College View, C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E, collegeview.com. Questions at collegeview.com is the email. And our phone number again is... 877, toll-free, 877-381-4567. Jump on the phone, jump on your email, let us know your thoughts. Join in on this Bible study as we are a large group gathered on the Internet tonight uh, to study the Bible together. And so we would appreciate and benefit from your participation tonight. Dad, last week uh, you mentioned some magnets that uh, were being manufactured any word on those this week? Those are actually ready, and I didn't get them picked up today, but I'll pick them up tomorrow, Lord willing, and, and we can get them out to you. If people would like to help us spread by word of mouth the uh, the news of – well, actually, that wouldn't be word of mouth. Would it be by way of magnetic sign? If you'd like, right. to, if you'd like to spread the word about the uh, virtual Bible study, send us an email and say, get me one of those magnet signs. 
And uh, we'll do that. We're going to have those ready, and, and hopefully we can get more and more people participating in these studies every week. So if you'd like one of those magnetic signs, I think you can put it on your car. It won't hurt the finish, and you can take it off when you're done with it and give it to somebody else to put on their car. And we'll be glad to send one to you. So let us know if you'd like to get one of those magnets. And also we'll remind our listeners about the audio comment feature. Dad, we've made the offer as well. Leave an audio comment. And you can leave us your name and address in that audio comment. We can strip that off. But if you leave us an audio comment, tell us where you are and that you enjoy listening to the virtual Bible study. We'll send you one as well. That's right. We'd like to get those kind of feedbacks. We we are really depending on you to get word out about the virtual Bible study. So help us out in those ways. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. As we talk about the leadership of the local congregation, Dad, as we look to the Bible and we see the leadership of the of the church, it's very much different than the leadership we see by looking at uh, organizational structures of denominations in the world today. That's exactly right. I think the first thing we want to stress in our study tonight is the fact that the Lord's church is organized at the local level and no higher. Every congregation is autonomous and independent. In fact, in Acts chapter 14... In verse 23, when the Apostle Paul was on, uh, Paul and Barnabas were on the first missionary journey, it says in verse 23 of Acts 14, when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. There are to be elders, a plurality of elders in every local congregation, and that's the highest order of organization that exists in the New Testament church as we read about it in the Bible. And so all denominational structures which have organization higher than the organization of local elders overseeing local congregations, that's not biblical. You couldn't find proof of that anywhere in the Scriptures. Again, we have to walk by faith. And so if we cannot read about it in the Scriptures, Dad, it's impossible for us to have faith about it. And so we can't be pleasing to God without faith. So how can we develop these structures, these organizational structures, beyond and above that of elders in every local congregation? How can we do that by faith, if we can't read about it in the New Testament. That's right. Obviously, I think probably the most extreme example of an organization beyond what's taught in the Bible is that of the Roman Catholic Church, with all of their hierarchy of organization leading all the way to the Pope in Rome. But most mainline denominations also have organizations. Uh, they may not be as as blatant as the papacy, but they have their organizations, and they're not biblical. A lot of people would disagree with that of the of the Catholic Church. Here's another one people would disagree with, the Salvation Army. Their organization follows that of the military, does it not? And a lot of people would have would say, oh, that that's wrong. Well, if, it's wrong, if that's wrong, why is your organization any better? If we can't read about it in the Scriptures, anything goes if we say it doesn't matter. Exactly right. So we want to stress that the church properly organized is organized at the local level and no higher, and there will be elders, a plurality of elders, in local congregations. Now, one of the things I'd like to stress in our study is that there are basically three Greek words that define the office of an elder. And you're going to have to excuse my Greek pronunciation, but the first word is poimen in Greek, if I've said that right. And it's alternately translated in the New Testament, shepherd and pastor. Now, that's interesting, Jacob, because... In the denominational world, a lot of times preachers, uh, preachers are called pastors, and a lot of times churches are overseen by the preacher or single pastor. There's just one. He is the pastor, and he, he sort of directs the affairs of the local church. Well, that word pastor or shepherd comes from the Greek word poimen, and it is synonymously used with the word episkopos, another Greek word translated in our English Bibles as overseer or bishop. 
Now get the idea. Bishop usually, for instance, in the Catholic Church is someone high in high rank in the a hierarchy a organization of the Catholic Church. But that word is used of elders in local congregations. And then the word elder or presbyter comes from the Greek word presbyteros, another Greek word. So there's three words. Poimen, episkopos, and presbyteros, and they are trans- those three words are translated by six English words, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, elder, presbyter. And let, let me show you a place where all three terms are used. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders. That's the Greek word presbyteros. He called the elders of the church, and when they were come to him, he said to them, and it goes on to talk about his discourse with the elders. In verse 28, he told them, Take therefore unto yourself, take heed therefore unto yourselves and all, unto all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. That's the word episkopos. To feed, that's the verb form of the Greek word poimen, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. To one group of men, Paul used all three Greek terms that denote this office. So that's Acts 20, beginning verse 17 down through 28. Then in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Paul said to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. And then he goes on to list the qualifications that we'll study here in just a little while. In that one text, he used the word elder from presbyteros. He used also the word bishop from uh, episkopos, two terms there in one text denoting the same office. And then finally, one more time, First Peter 3, beginning verse 5, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Uh, those, uh, el- the word elders from presbyteros. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ also partake of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock. That's from the Greek word poimen, which would suggest shepherd or pastor. Uh, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. The word oversight is from the Greek word presbyteros, not by constraint, but willingly, and so on. There again, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, all three Greek words that denote this office are used synonymously and interchangeably. And so these terms all apply to the same office, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, elder, presbyter. And they all suggest the work that these men are supposed to do. All right, so we have three Greek words that uh, have uh, six English variations. Shepherd or pastor, overseer or bishop, elder or presbyter. Those English words, Dad, then uh, carry some type of uh, indication as to the job that they're to do. That's right. For instance, a shepherd or pastor is one who guards and tends and feeds sheep. And so that would indicate the the work of the spirit overseeing and or excuse me of, of feeding and tending to the spiritual needs of the local church and we were told in acts chapter 20 that they are to feed the flock or take uh, take key to the flock and so that that pastoral idea there yeah now the the to be an overseer a bishop that's one who looks over or superintends and inspects and so the elder would do that he sees that things are being done in a local church or that they're being done properly and correctly And then the word presbyteros suggests one who is older, experienced, and wise. And this would indicate that these are to exercise mature judgment and leadership in the local church. So actually the words themselves, Jacob, 
actually suggest the work that these men are supposed to, to be doing. Now, back to the idea of overseer or bishop. You said that that is one who superintends or inspects. He's to look over the work of the church. That's in the spiritual realm, right? That's exactly right. Well, actually, it, it might involve physical things. You know, sometimes uh, there are physical necessities that have to be uh, addressed and judgments that have to be made in addressing those physical needs. So they might get involved in the physical aspects of a, of, of their uh, flocks situation. Certainly but, the primary interest would be but in, primarily in spiritual. spiritual. That's right. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. If you're just joining us on the program tonight, we're talking about the eldership, the leadership of the con- local congregation. As we talked about earlier, this is found in the New Testament. The guidelines for elders and for the leadership of the church is found in the New Testament. Any kind of uh, man-made organization beyond that of elders in a local congregation is something that is extra biblical, cannot be found in the New Testament, and therefore must be done without faith. And we know the consequences of acting without faith. So we must make sure that we're following the patterns in the New Testament. That's right. Uh, we want to talk about the qualifications of elders, and we're going to go to that after our first break. But one of the things that we might point out, Jacob, is that some people have bad attitudes or wrong attitudes toward the qualifications of elders. For instance, I know plenty of people who sort of manifest the attitude that they think that uh, no one can qualify. I, I mean, in different churches that I've known of, it's been so hard to appoint elders because some are just almost determined that nobody can meet the qualifications. Uh, uh, that's a wrong attitude. Men can clearly qualify. God said that it was possible to appoint elders. Therefore, it is possible for men to qualify so themselves. So you're saying they don't have to walk across the baptistry without getting wet, huh? That's right. All right. They don't have to be perfect. They're men, but they can qualify. Another bad attitude or wrong attitude that people sometimes have is that, well, we don't really have people who meet the qualifications. We'll just put the best men in that we can, even though they admittedly don't meet the qualifications. That'd be wrong. That'd be a wrong thing to do. It'd be wrong to appoint men to the job and expect them to grow into it. They're supposed to be qualified before they begin. Uh, It's wrong to think that the qualifications are flexible or can be bent or uh, altered. You know, I've heard that uh, presented before, that the the qualifications are sort of guidelines or ideals that uh, you put before you know, that uh, God just sort of gave us sort of some good things to think about as you think about it. I don't think so. When we get to these qualifications here in a minute, I think we're going to see otherwise. And finally, one other thing that I've heard people suggest that I think is wrong. We're going to talk about it in our study tonight, too. Once an elder, always an elder. I don't think that's necessarily so. A guy might be qualified, and then something might happen that causes him to be disqualified. And therefore, if he's not qualified, he should not be serving anymore. It's not true that you're once an elder, always an elder. All right, it's time for a break. And when we take this break, we hope you'll use this time to get your thoughts together and join us on the phone at 877-381-4567. Or you'll email us your questions or comments about the leadership of the local congregation at questions at collegeview.com. That's the email address to use. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study, studying the role of the elder, will be right back after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. 
Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And welcome back online tonight as we talk about the role of elders in the local congregation We've talked about the fact that uh, their their name, their title, denotes uh, their position and uh, their obligations to the church. And we're looking at uh, qualifications now, Dad, as we look at uh, the elders. We, again, we want to have everything done by faith according to what the New Testament says. And so we need to look to what the New Testament says about the qualifications of those who can fill that position. That's right. As we get started in this, let me repeat the questions that we're wanting your feedback on. I think there are a couple of the controversial things that involve the eldership and qualifications for elders. The questions that we've got tonight for your consideration, number one, concerning children, must a, an elder have more than one? And must all of his children be faithful Christians? Two parts. Must he have more than one child? Must they all be faithful Christians? Number two, if an elder's wife dies, should he or must he step down from serving as an elder? So we're going to get to those as we get into these qualifications, Jacob. So if you have not responded yet, uh, get on the email or give us a phone call. Let us know what you think. Let's start out with, I think, what is one of the most obvious things, Jacob, and that is that if a person to be an elder, a, an elder, as a person, must be a man. He must be a male. Well, it's obvious uh, in the scriptures, but it's not so obvious to many in the religious world today. In First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. And so First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that indicates very clearly, if a man desires the office, and if he is the husband of one wife, woman cannot meet either, either one of those uh He can't be a man, he can't be a husband. And, and really, the qualification, we'll talk more about the husband of one wife in a minute, but the idea that he's a husband of a wife would indicate that he's a man too. So it says he must be a man, it says he must be a husband. They've always got to be a man. Titus 1. Now, by the way, Jacob, these are the places where people would go to look for these qualifications of elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. We're going to be referring to those texts back and forth all night. So those are the ones you want to look for when you're looking for the qualifications of elders. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Titus 1, verse 5, beginning, says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife. Again, to be a husband... He'd have to be a man. So, you know, you'd think that almost could go without saying, but in denominational world, they're appointing women as bishops, women as pastors. Now, they have they have false concept of what a pastor and a bishop is. I'm I'm aware of that. But even with their false notions, right? If you want to grant, yeah, yeah, that they're right about a bishop. They, yeah. They're still putting women in those yeah. roles. Yeah. And, and it would be completely out of line. All so, right. Very so, clear. All right. 877-381-4567, at collegeview.com. The next thing that a man must have, Dad, and this is a qualification, is the desire. First Timothy chapter 3, again, verse 1. If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So the person must desire. Yeah, and I think that's also made clear in First Peter 5, verse 2, where Peter was... Uh, speaking to the elders, said, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. The New American Standard Version there translates that, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. And so one of the things that, that 
we'd be looking for if we were going to appoint elders is a man who desires that office. Now, that's not the sole qualification, obviously, because a man could be unqualified in other ways. But he must be a man and he must desire to do this good work. All right. The next qualification that we read is that he must be blameless. And I want to ask you about this one because First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, as it goes on there, a bishop must then be blameless. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, if any be blameless, talking about uh, the qualification of an elder. So uh, an elder must be blameless, yet we just said that an elder is going to be human and so will not be perfect. How do you correlate the two? How do you harmonize that? Well, I think that that be harmonized by the fact that the, that the kind of person we're looking for is that when he's made a mistake, when he's committed a sin, when he's done a wrong, he's the kind of person who's going to correct that. And so I may have, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I did something that was pretty, you know, off the mark. But if I corrected it here 10 years later, I'm not blamable concerning what I had corrected in the past. So brother so-and-so who has a foul mouth and uses foul language in the office and is very is very well known and he will not correct that, he's been approached by it and will not correct it, he would not be qualified as an elder. He would be someone who would be blameless. That's right. Would be blamed, could that's, be blamed. That's right. And we're going to see some other qualifications that would also pertain. I, you know, a lot of these qualifications, I think, are almost overlapping, sort of restating some of the same things. On this word blameless, Jacob, the word means above reproach. Now, it doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, uh, but it, it suggests an exemplary life, uh, uh, a person who's not under suspicious for, suspicion for having done wrong, uh, one who really is setting a proper example. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. That's how you join in on the program tonight. And the phone line is open. We'd like for your call. Next uh, uh, qualification that we see is that is that he must be the husband of one wife. First Timothy chapter three verse two says that he is the husband of one wife. Titus chapter one verse six, and to be blameless, the husband of one wife. And so we see very clearly the husband, the, the elder there must be the husband of one wife. And that gets us to your question tonight, Dad, about yeah. the elder who has a wife who passes away. Yeah, that, let's go to that question. We've got a lot of email response. We're still looking for your email response, but let's talk about that. If an elder's wife dies, now I think, I think, I hope that all would agree that he must be a married man. He must be a man married to a woman. He must have a wife to be qualified to be appointed as an elder. For instance, if a man had never been married, he's a single man, he's never been married, would we appoint him as an elder? No, he's not qualified. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, the question is, so he's got a wife and we appoint him as an elder. At some point in the future, then after he's been serving as an elder, his wife dies, should he step down? That's the question. We've got a lot of response here. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. If you'd like to register your Answers to those questions or any question or comment you might have. Randy from uh, Jackson, Missouri. And one thing I noticed, Dad, is Randy is always the top of our list. He sends in his response almost as, media, as soon yeah, as you send Yeah, we really appreciate Randy. He fires an answer right back to uh, us. Uh, so we always almost. take his first on the program. He says to the answer that question, I believe the intent of the Scripture is that the elder be a faithful husband with eyes for his own wife only. A womanizing man is not suited to be an elder. Paul used himself as an example of someone who was a better servant of the churches because he did not have a wife. 
Well, uh, you know, Paul said there, and I think Randy's alluding to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul was talking about under the present distress, it was better not to have a wife and have the concerns of caring for a wife because they were suffering persecution and so forth. Paul said for his purposes, now, he wasn't an elder. He was a, he was an evangelist. And for his purposes and with the traveling he did and so forth, he saw there was a certain advantage to not having a wife under those circumstances. But I, I would not use that to apply to the qualification of elders. But uh, I do agree with Randy when he says the elders to be a faithful husband with eyes for his wife only and certainly not a womanizer. Let's let's just read down through these, Jacob, and, and then we might summarize as we get to the end. We got Stacy from Richmond, Virginia, who's written and says, this question revolves around human emotions. He's such a good man. He should not be punished by the death of his wife. But he goes on to say, if an elder is no longer blameless, adultery, let's say he's no longer blameless let's say he's committed adultery we would demand he step down and he he likewise says if a man is no longer the husband of one wife as the bible says he no longer meets the bible teaching uh and so he says don't let simple teaching be clouded by man's will and emotion so uh, i think stacy's on the side of saying yes he should step down all right uh we'll go on and we'll look at uh, james in columbia he says that if an elder's wife dies, he must step down. He should step down as an elder. James says uh, yes to that question. All right. Brian in Plainfield, Indiana, says the elder is still the husband of one wife, regardless of which side of eternity she is on. I would not think he should step down. i got a question for Brian on that. Uh, he's still the husband of one wife. And but but this wife is on the other side of eternity. In other words, she's crossed over. She's but, died. But she's still his wife. What if he married another wife? Now we believe scripturally that he he could remarry. He's not bound to. He's not bound. You know the bond of marriage ends at death. So he his wife died. He could marry. Is he is the is he the husband of two wives now? Then would he have to step down because he's not the husband of one wife anymore? I think there's some problem with that with that position. I, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to challenge Brian on that. Well, it sounds like the woman who had seven husbands. Uh, <laughs> who, how many is she going to have when she gets to heaven, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Brian in Plainfield, Indiana, the elder is still the husband of... Oh, well, that's one I just read. That's one I just read. Let's yeah. go on to Stephen in Pennsylvania. He says, uh, I have never thought about this, but I will make uh, the best educated statement I can from the Scripture. In both Timothy and Titus, it says the husband of one wife. This obviously means you cannot be an elder in a polygamous relationship. I don't understand how the situation would be any different if the man was a faithful Christian but never married to begin with. Therefore, I would have to say yes, they have to be they have to have a wife in order to be an elder, even if I decided as a single man to raise up kids as a foster parent and they all follow the Lord, I still don't believe that I would be able to be an elder. Again, rebuke me sharply so that I may be sound in the faith if I am wrong. He references Titus 1 verse 13. Appreciate that attitude by Stephen. But he says they would need to step down. Need to step down. Okay. We've got, uh, uh, well, now that one just, that next one, Jacob, just deals with the, the, the multiple child question that we're going to get to here in a minute. Let me keep sorting through these. We've got uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, who says, concerning this question, if an elder's wife dies, should he or must he step down from serving as an elder? He says, I know that many, uh, let me start over can he answer yes to the question, are you the husband of one wife? That is also a qualification. I know that many say that it is a qualification that is only necessary to show he is qualified and not one that would prohibit him from continuing. But I would need some scriptural proof to show that the qualifications are only in place 
only to place a man in the office and not to keep him in the office. What if she dies a month after he's taken his office, a week, a year? Does time in office make the difference, or is it according to qualifications? Would he only need to be a man of good reputation before he's appointed an elder, but not after? Not be given to much wine only before he takes office, but not after, etc. So Jim is saying that these qualifications are ongoing. And if there's some part of the qualification that he now no longer meets, he's not qualified. All right. We have an email from someone who doesn't have a name here. Uh, their email address is any church. So if that's you, you know you're out there. They answer yes, that they should step down. And uh, I believe we have uh, we have a chat by from someone here who's listening. James, we've already taken his answer. He has a question to you, I believe, Dad, based on your statement uh, that uh, he asked, can he not remarry if an elder's wife? Uh, I was I was just making a point. If he if if his dead wife means that he still has a wife, that was the point was being made by our correspondent. He said his wife is dead, but he still has a wife, even though she's dead. He's still a husband, one wife. Well, what if he married again? Would he have two wives and then be unqualified because he has two wives? All right. And then James chats back. He says, neither marry nor are given in marriage and and talking about in heaven, uh, but are as the angels. So I guess James would say that, well, he's no longer the husband of that woman. Well, that's what I think, too. But that's not what our correspondent said. That's I was I was offering that challenge to our correspondent. All right. Thank you, James, for the the comments there. Uh, Steve in Cuttawa, Kentucky says, um, as I understand the elders' qualifications set forth by Paul, being a widower would not disqualify one. He is not obligated to resign if his wife dies. And furthermore, a man who is widowed could be appointed to be an overseer. He is still a, quote, husband of one wife. That expression literally means a one-woman man, there being no specific words in the Greek language for husband or wife. After giving instruction to Timothy regarding appointment of elders and deacons, Paul set forth qualifications for needy widows to be enrolled or supported by the local church. One requirement was, quote, having been the wife of one man, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. The words having been are added by English translators for clarity. A qualifying widow is a wife of one man, even though she is not presently married. The Greek instruction is exactly the same as that in First Timothy chapter three verse two, except that a man and woman, except that man and woman are reversed. If it is plain that a widow who has not remarried can be a one-woman man, then it is equally clear that a widower can meet the qualification of being a one-woman man, even though he has no wife. Uh, well, uh, I, I misread I, his his. If it is plain that a wo- wo- widow who has not remarried can be a one-man woman, then it is equally clear that a widower can meet the qualification of being a one-woman man, even though he has no wife. I guess we'd have to also ask, could that widower there in, in Titus... The widow. Widow, in First Timothy chapter 5, yeah. if she had multiple husbands, could she not be taken into the number? Or what if she remarried? Would she be qualified? If she married again as a widow, could she be taken into the number? I, th- I, di- I disagree. I understand Steve's argument, and I really appreciate Steve's scholarship. I know Steve, and I think he's an excellent scholar of the Bible. But I disagree with this conclusion. That talking about the elder, that's obviously talking about past tense. She's a widow. And so we know that she was, past tense, the, hus- the wife of one husband. This is talking about present tense. The, in the qualification of elders, it says... 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, a bishop must be, present tense, must be blameless, must be the husband of one wife. That's present tense. That's not talking about past tense. That's talking about he's right now. Obviously, the widow was the wife of a husband, 
But this talking about the elders says he must be present tense, the husband of one wife. That, that'd be my difference with Steve, but I, I appreciate his good scholarship. All right, and let's take Jason from Pennsylvania, and then we're late for a break. Jason says, all I can really say is, does he still meet the qualification of being the husband of one wife? The reason for an elder to have a wife is not just to meet the qualification, because the importance of the duty and the issues that the elder may face, he needs a wife to help him get through these times. Well, uh, we'd have to ask, does he meet the qualification? We don't really know why the qualification, Dad. Any, uh, We're speculating space, when we say that's why God made it that right. way. We're speculating. But I, I, I agree with Jason. There's, you, you could speculate. It, it makes but, sense to me yeah. to see it like Jason sees right, it. But right. we don't know for sure why God said you need to be the husband of one wife. That's exactly right. All right. We're late for a break, and we'll take that now. We'll take our bullet point. Dad, you got some good comments about uh, being in submission to elders. We want to talk about that later on in the program. But this bullet point has some very good thoughts along those lines. We're waiting to hear from you. Our phone line is open. Our email address is questions at collegeu.com, and it's ready for your email. And the phone number is 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after these messages. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. When the writer mentions those that have the rule over you, it is a clear reference to the elders. 1 Timothy 5:17 speaks of elders that rule well. Now, what are we to do in respect to the elders? It says to obey them and submit yourselves. In what areas should we obey and submit to the elders? In matters of faith and doctrine? Absolutely not, at least not if they teach or instruct us in anything that is different from the Word of God, Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. We should always obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. And so our submission in matters of faith and doctrine is to the Lord and not to any man, 2 John, verses 9 through 11. It seems then that the only area where elders have decision-making power to which we must submit is in matters of judgment. In the work of any local congregation, there will be many judgments to make about our collective work. Where, when, who, and to some extent how, these are all questions that must be decided. Now, the elders ought not to attempt to be, quote, lords over God's heritage, 1 Peter 5, verse 3. We would hope that they are constantly seeking the input of every faithful member as such decisions are made. But when the final judgment is made, whether it was in agreement with our own personal judgment or not, we have a command. Obey them and submit yourselves. The next time you're tempted to question some decision of the elders or to argue for your own point of view, think again about the instruction of Hebrews 13:17. If it is a matter of faith or doctrine, then be ready to stand firmly for what is right. But if it is an area of judgment, give in quickly to the decision has been made, humbly submitting yourself. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13, and this is the Virtual Bible Study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And welcome back to the program as we talk about elders on the virtual Bible study tonight. Jacob, we got a lot of ground to cover. I don't know if we can get it all done tonight, but just to summarize, we got we had people on both sides of that question. If an elder's wife dies, should he step down? I, I'm, I'm taking the position, and I think you probably agree with me, that I think he should step down. And I base it really on a very simple consideration, and that being from 1 Timothy 3 uh, and Titus 1 says he must be the husband of one wife. He must be the husband of one wife. It's repeated in both places. It's in the present tense. And if his wife has died, he's not the husband of one wife, not not of one living wife, with, with consideration to the comments we read earlier. He, he's, his wife is dead. He's not. And I mean, if you were to ask on a questionnaire, are you married? No. Do you have a wife? No. 
And so he doesn't have a wife, and so he's not qualified on that basis. And to be consistent with uh, the other side of this position, Dad, if the people, if the, those who say he is still qualified after the wife dies because he's still the husband of one wife, again, I would to be consistent. I don't know that any of them take this position, but to be consistent, you'd have to say if he ever remarried, he would be disqualified because now he'd be the husband of two wives. Yeah. If he was still the husband of one after she's dead. And he's married again. He'd be the husband of two wives, and he would be. And, and we're we're not we're not espousing that view, but logic would demand that conclusion if you take the first position that that you know he's still married. He's still the husband of one wife if she's dead. If you disagree, or if you'd like to add comments, the, the phone line is open, or the email address is ready for you to use. We'd like to hear from you. We're going to keep firing off these qualifications, Jacob. But real quick, let's take an email from Christy, who asks, "How old should an elder be?" Bible doesn't say. It does use the word elder or presbyter from the Greek word presbyteros, and that word suggests one who is older, experienced, and wise. And so he would need to be an older, experienced, wise man. How and, old, nobody can say and, for sure. Well, there is another qualification, though, that does help us understand how old he is. He must have children who are old enough to be uh, faithful. That's right. That's right. Old enough to be married, old enough to have children who are old enough to have obeyed the gospel. So that would indicate something of his age. All right. Thank you, Christy, for that question tonight on the virtual Bible study. Again, if you have any question or comment, join in on the phone or over email. And that is a qualification of this person who could be an elder dad is he must rule his own family well. That's right. First Timothy 3 uh, says in verse 5 that he is one that ruleth well his own house. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Pretty common sense thing there, Jacob. If you, if you can't take care of your own business, how are you going to take care of the church's business? Well, and certainly we've seen men who had houses who were, that were in disarray, and uh, they certainly were in no position to assume uh, the responsibility of overseeing others because they had so many issues of their own that they had uh, no no bandwidth to take on those other responsibilities. Exactly right. All right, and he must have faithful children. That's... Now we're going to get to the other part of the question. He must be a man having faithful children, and we ask the question, uh, must an elder have more than one child? Well, what about that? Uh, there's several points. Well, let's take our emails first, and then maybe we can. it'll get to some of the things we want to talk about. So uh, Randy says... Uh, no, an elder does not have to have multiple children. For example, if the scripture said that an elder must have clean bedrooms, he would, we would not assume that he would be disqualified if he had a one-bedroom house. However, that one bedroom would have to be clean. Uh, so, uh, and then he goes on to say, although we would be, we w- could be dogmatic about the passage, I think the intent of the passage is that the elder have a family under control and in proper submission. If he's not training his children in the word, then he is not qualified to be an elder. The family is a microcosm of the church, and the elder must manage his family well to prove that he can manage the church. You should have repeated your questions. Your questions were, yeah. must an elder have more than one child, and must all of the children be faithful children? All right, let's, faithful Christians. Okay, go ahead and get another one there, Jerry. All right, Stacy in Richmond, Virginia says, while I believe the word children is plural, there is great debate around singular or plural. My reasoning is from the standpoint of dealing with family squib- squabbles between siblings and gaining experience of dealing with two parties. He references some common childhood uh, squabbles. Dad, he's touching me or he's lying. So he thinks you gain by dealing with multiple parties there. But well, main- now that's the first part of his answer. Must he have multiple children? Must he have more than one? Stacy would think he should. He says there he sees an advantage to having more than okay, one. Okay, he sees an advantage. 
I don't I don't know if I would I don't I wouldn't argue with him that, that it may be advantageous to have again, more than one. Again, but we're sur- surmising as to why God gave that qualification. Yeah. And so in other words, we might say that it'd be preferable or it'd be best or it'd be helpful if he had more than one, but could we say he must have more than one? That's that's the question. All right. Um, the answer to the question, must all children be faithful, is yes. If one qua- child can qualify him, then one child can disqualify him. We cannot pick and choose. If only if only if it only takes one child to violate Titus chapter one six, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, an unfaithful child is unruly, and it say, he says ruleth his, well his own house. Of First Timothy chapter three verse four is determined by what follows in the text, having his children in subjection with all gravity. It only takes one child to violate the passage. Human reasoning says two out of three ain't bad, but if one faithful child qualifies the man, then one unfaithful child disqualifies him. Well, now, here's here's something to take into consideration. Let's say a man has three children. Two of them are Christians and one is not, but none of them are accused of right or unruly. In other words, Stacy's assuming that if they're not believers, not Christians, then they are necessarily accused of right and unruly. That doesn't follow. And so, in other words, that, I, I appreciate Stacy's comments, but what you got to remember is that those two things are not necessarily synonymous. This child might not be a faithful Christian, but it doesn't mean that he's living a riotous life either. And Stacy's assumed that that's true and it's not necessarily true. So that, that would be one objection I'd have to his conclusion. James, again, from Columbia says, must an elder have more than one child? No. Must all of his children be faithful Christians? Yes. Um Brian in Plainfield and he says, must an elder have more than one child to be safe? Yes, but I would have to put a lot more study into this in order not to buy my opinion on others. Must all the children be faithful Christians? If they're still under his household, yes. When children are full grown and decide to leave the Lord, I'm not sure a father has much control over that. However, I would question the qualification of an elder who had more unfaithful adult children than faithful adult children. Well, okay. Again, you're getting close to... Your opinion there, though, if you're going to say that it doesn't matter uh, after they're gone, then how would you say then that it uh, you have to question the qualifications if they're you know, if the scale tips? Well, over? I would agree with Brian that you know if I've got adult children and and they've all fallen away or the majority of them have fallen away, then I think that does reflect on my ability to influence and lead them as a father. So I think there's something to be taken into consideration, uh, and we may talk more about that. All right. Stephen says, must an elder have more than one? No. The word children is what we call a distributive plural. The big word there. Way to go, Stephen. All right. No, that's good. <laughs> distributive plural. That is, it can mean both child in the singular sense or more than one child. I heard it said that we often talk with many plural words. For example, what is the singular of sheep or deer? Oftentimes we use those words when only referring to a lamb or a doe or a buck, or when we talk about data, plural, instead of datum, singular. Must all of his children be faithful Christians? I've heard the argument go both ways on this. I believe that all of the children must be faithful even when they leave their parents. Sometimes children may be baptized when they are younger to be part of a crowd, or they just go through the motions of church worship. They may not be willing to want to go to church, but their parents will drag them along. Therefore, when they move out of the house, they still may not care and leave God's church. Some may argue that this should not be the case, but I would strongly suggest that the elder step down from his position. Others may say that their children, child or children, was or were unfaithful while they were at home, and therefore it would not be fair for the elder to step down because he did his job. But did he really? I would have to think, 
looking from the child's action of leaving the church that maybe the father did not do such a great job in bringing the child up in the admonition of the Lord. It just doesn't seem that if that as if the father really convicted his child of in references first to me, chapter one, verse nine, he says, but again, convict me if I'm contradicting. I think it's, I think Steve, I would agree with Stephen's point that if, if, if a man's children become unfaithful immediately upon leaving home, then that would be, that would indicate something more than say a, a child who remained faithful for 20 years after they left home. Uh, and, and later in their own adult life, they became unfaithful. I, I would agree that that, reflects differently upon a father's parenting skills we got a real long email from garland and i'm not we just don't have time to read it all but he makes reference to the point that it's important to the show that the word children can can include one child and he references genesis 2 uh excuse me genesis 21 that's really i think an important passage people might want to note that in Genesis 21, verse 5, beginning, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, quote, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah had one child. It says that she gave suck to children. The word children includes the singular child. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, Matthew 22, verse 23, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without and to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in and to her. So in Deuteronomy 25, it said child, Jesus substituted the word children. Obviously, if a man had one child, his brothers would not have been obligated to to marry his widow and raise children to him. So there is an argument, I think a very good argument, it's included in this article that Garland sends, where the word child and children are used synonymously. Thank you, Garland, for your comments tonight. Uh, Jim Walsh in uh, Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, says concerning children, must an elder have more than one and must all of his children be faithful? Can he answer yes to the question, do you have faithful children? As to having one or many, can he answer yes to the above question? I think that will go a long way. As what if I ask him, what if, I, what if there's a man who has one child, and, I, and I, I just met him, I don't know him, I ask him, do you have any children? How would he answer that question? He'd say yes. Yes, I have a child. He'd say yes. If I said, do you have any children? He would say yes. And I'd say, how many do you have? And he said one. You wouldn't correct him on his. I wouldn't grammar. say. Well, I would say, oh man, you you answered you, that question wrong. Right. I would say I would understand the answer because that's the way we use that terminology. It's the same way as we just proved from the scripture. That's the same way that that terminology is used in the Bible. So I think that's a good point. All right, and the second question about uh, must all of his children be faithful? I realize that when an elder has more than one, that the issue of faithfulness is a concern, and that will have to be dealt with on a ba- on a uh, one basis for each congregation and their knowledge and trust in that man. Uh, this this email correspondent doesn't give us a name, but says, must he have more than one child? No, but it certainly could be helpful. Also, it depends on the congregation. If there are those that object to having one child rather than cause or create problems, I would not serve. Then concerning if if they become unfaithful, he says, depends on their age. A brother might have several children that are faithful Christians and have one child that is not accountable yet. If they're still living at home or how long they have been gone from home should be considered i think that's an interesting point what if a fellow has five kids the first four are of age of of accountability and have obeyed the gospel are serving the lord faithfully but one is just five or six years old would he not be qualified because he has that one that's not reached the age of accountability you'd have to you'd have to take the same position on that as you take on maybe 
a fellow who has five kids, grown kids, and one of them falling away, you'd have to take the same position. They'd stand or fall together, I think. So you'd have to be consistent is what you're saying. And we yeah. talked about with the wife. Uh, Jason in Pennsylvania. Pat, by the way, you skipped one, Jacob. Pat says yes. And he, he believes that, that you must have more than one, and they must all be faithful, I think. I think that's why I take his answer. All right. Um, I did skip that. I don't know where his answer is there, but it's not in my stack anymore here. Uh, Jason in Pennsylvania must never have more than one. I used to answer this question saying that since the word children is pearl, they must have more than one. The congregation that I'm a member of is in the process right now of looking at the qualifications of elder. And one of men that we would select does have only one child. So I studied this verse pretty deeply. I did a word study on the word children, looking at how it is used in the New Testament. The word, the Greek word is uh, technon. In Matthew 22, verses 24, saying, Master Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Did a man have to marry his brother's wife if she had only one child? I believe that if there was one child, the brother would not have to marry his brother's wife to raise up more seed. I believe the word children here includes the singular. He looked at First Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. But if a widow have children or nephews, descendants, grandparents, um, or if a woman have children, let them... First, learn to show piety at home and to requite their parents. That is good and acceptable for God. If a widow only has one child, does this first still apply? Can the church help the needy Christian widow if she only has one child? I believe that also in this verse, the word children includes the singular. If there is one child, that child has responsibility to their mother. I've come to the conclusion from my study of the word children that the word, uh, the way that it is used in the New Testament includes the singular, including verses that speak of elders' children. So Jason has done us uh, some study there, Dad, and, and gives us a couple good verses. And real quickly on the second part, must they all be faithful? Uh, he says, I'd ask a question. Does a child not being faithful qualify as rebellion? How well has he brought up his children in training and admonition of the Lord? will show how well they do in, in his position of being a shepherd. If a child rebelled against the father's spiritual training, I believe it makes the man not qualified because of the child's rebellion. Uh, and real quickly, we've got an email coming in from James who basically makes the same point for 1 Timothy 5. The widow in 1 Timothy 5 had to have children, just like the elder in 1 Timothy 3. These two stand or fall together. 1 Timothy 5 speaks of anyone providing for his own relatives, but also speaks of her having children, plural. I believe this indicates that children, though plural, may be used to indicate one having one or more children. And so James says one would qualify. I think that's the position I take, too. Uh, I I believe we've proven from the Scriptures. This is not just our opinion, but Scripture shows that the world... The word children includes those who have one child. Uh, We've we've seen the scriptural argument. So one child would qualify. I'm just absolutely certain on that. Concerning the idea of faithful children, the qualification is that he must have faithful children. And so let's see. Here's a man who's got five kids, and four of them are faithful. One is not. Does he have faithful children? You'd have to make the same argument. He does well, have faithful children. Okay, but you'd have to make the same argument that if he had five children and one was faithful and four were not, that he would be qualified. Well, yes, and then some judgment's going to have to come into play there as to whether that means that he's really done a pretty miserable job of being a father, of leading his children, and so forth. So some judgment's going to come to play. Uh, but the question, I mean, we're going to have to take the same position. If one child qualifies a man... Child, children includes a man with one child. Faithful children includes a man with one faithful child. Now, if he's got five and only one faithful, we might have some other questions to ask. But just on 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 its basis, we, we could not disqualify him on that basis. Uh, 
in other words, he he would if you ask him the question, do you have faithful children? Here's this guy's got five kids, only one of them is a faithful Christian. And you ask him the question, do you have faithful children? How would he answer? He'd say yes, and you'd say how many, and he'd say one. And so now I think there's some other things to take in consideration, but you couldn't just out of hand disqualify him on that basis. Those things have to go together. I mean, whatever logic reaches one conclusion also reaches the other conclusion. All right. I'm not sure. I, I couldn't do that. I mean, I, I understand logically the argument, but if it was me, I couldn't do it. Well, I wouldn't want to either. Uh, but I understand the lo- logical. I mean, uh, what I'm saying yeah. is maybe there's some other things that, that, that plenty of other questions we've got to ask. Does he has he ruled his own house? Well, has he personally been the kind of example that he should have been? Is he blameless and so forth? There's some plenty that's going to raise plenty of other questions. But just on its surface, you, the logic would have to be the same in that question as it is in the other. All right. Well, we've missed our break. I guess we should just go ahead. And yeah, go let's, let's go quickly. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. You can take up the time that we missed in our break by calling in right now and letting us know your thoughts. Real quick, we got an, a question from Mark in uh, no from Kimberly in uh, Cookville, Tennessee. If all of an elder's children became Christians and then one of them fell away, should he step down? What if all of them fell away? Should he step down? Uh, if one of them fell away. He would, I, and he still had faithful children. I don't think you could demand it from just that statement in this, in the qualification. But if they all fell away, and then you ask, does he have faithful children? You'd have to say, no, he has no faithful children. He, she goes on to ask, what if, if the children, would they still be faithful if they attended a liberal church? And I'd have to say, no, we believe that makes a person unfaithful if they're not worshiping in a sound congregation. If they're not a member of a sound congregation, they're not faithful. All right. Thank you, Kimberly, for those questions. Let's go on and try to. We're we're going to run out of time here, sure enough, Jacob. We got several more qualifications to cover. We could cover some of them pretty fast. The man is to be vigilant. First Timothy three verse two means that, that suggests the idea of watchful. You got to be an informed person if you're going to be watchful for the flock. You've got to be a good student. You got to be aware of what's going on. Must be temperate. Uh, first uh, Titus chapter one verse eight. In the list of things, he must be temperate. In other words, he's not given to excess. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not a person who has trouble controlling himself. And the next word goes along with that. He must be sober. First to be four, three, verse two, Titus one, verse eight. He's supposed to be. Which the word sober means self-controlled. He's to be of good behavior and of a good report of them that are without. I think that's an important qualification. In other words, even people who are not Christians are going to see that this is a good man. He has a good report in the community, even among those who are not Christians. They know this about him. Well, there's some other qualifications. He must be given to hospitality. First Timothy chapter three, verse two, Titus one, verse eight. A given to hospitality, a lover of hospitality. An important qualification. He must be given to hospitality. And, and you know, that's a thing that men need to be working at because more and more in our current society, people are less and less inclined to extend hospitality. But that's a qualification of an elder. It's an ongoing qualification of an elder. And if an elder is not given to hospitality, then he becomes unqualified. Well, again, that's the husband of one wife qualification. If that is not uh, retroactive, then this would not be as well. He wasn't given to hospitality when he was trying to become an elder and then he quit. No, he needs to be given to hospitality as an elder. That's right. He's uh, uh, to be a lover of good men, uh, Titus 1.8. He's to be apt to teach, First Timothy 3, verse 2. To be apt to teach means to have some aptitude in teaching. I heard a guy once say, well, you know, this guy was being considered as an elder. And he, and he said, well, he's never taught anybody. And one fellow says, well, he's apt to do that any day now. That's not the way the word's used there. The word means to have aptitude in teaching. In other words, he is to have demonstrated his ability as a teacher. Uh, both on one-on-one, perhaps publicly as well. I don't think necessarily you would say publicly would have to follow, but certainly uh, on a personal level, 
and hopefully publicly he would have shown an aptitude in teaching. I'm going to go and say you better just give up. We're not going to get through all of these qualifications. We've got emails to take. I think we've got a phone call that's coming in. Uh, so let's quickly uh, get these. Um, we also see that he is told fast the faithful word. First Timothy chapter three verse two, Titus one verse nine. He says hold fast, not given to wine. Not to be a striker or a brawler. By the way, on that one, not he's not to be given to wine. That's there's kind of an interesting argument to make there. You know, these elders are supposed to be the most spiritual man, supposed to be the most spiritual men in a congregation, and they're not to be given to wine. If the most spiritual men, you think if anybody could handle drinking alcoholic beverages, it'd be the elders because they're the most spiritual men in the church. If anybody's able to do that and control themselves and not be endangered by it, it'd be the elders. But the elders are told not to drink any wine. So if the most spiritually mature people in the church are not to drink wine, what does that say of everybody else? All right, let's go down to Jennings, Florida, and welcome Nick to the program. Hello, Nick. Welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Uh, hello, Jacob. How are you doing? Good. Uh wanted to make a comment back on the point concerning the uh, one-child elder and a couple of the arguments that's been made. Uh, from Genesis 21 concerning Sarah having one child. Okay. Uh, as you look at women in the Old Testament that might have children, uh, sometimes when we would look at that, we would see that while we, we understand from the context of Genesis 1 that she did have one child, would it be possible for her to have uh, nursed two children or more children? It certainly could have been possible. Okay. Uh, so my, I guess my question is, if uh, she could have nursed more than one child, we understand from the context of what is mentioned in the chapter uh, of Genesis 21 that she only had one child, but she could have possibly have nursed two children. Say if a mother had been sick with her child or died, she could have nursed someone else's child, even though we don't know that for certain. Certainly. Uh, what about some of the other passages that were referenced? Uh, the, the, the passage in uh, that Jesus references back to Deuteronomy about the man who has no children. Uh, In Matthew 22, I believe that when when we go back to the Old Testament, we will see that Deuteronomy, I believe it was chapter 25 that was referenced, you will see that it does talk about one child. In other words, it is in the singular in the Old Testament text there. But when you go to Matthew 22, you see that the Sadducees who are raising the questions to Jesus is the one that used children, plural, uh, so it's not Jesus that himself that's using it, and the question would become, are they making a mistake by misquoting it? But, of course, when you take those two passages together, Deuteronomy 25 would point out that if he had no child, and certainly if he had no child, he would have no children as well. Okay. I, I understand your point there, that it could have been a misreference of, uh, that's correct. of that passage. Okay. Well, Nick, let me ask you about First Timothy 5. What if a widow had one child... Would that one child have been obligated, based upon First Timothy 5, to care for his mother? It says, if a widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to require their parents. But what if she had just one child? Would that one child, on that, based upon that command of that scripture, would that one child be obligated to care for his widowed mother? Yes, I, I believe that would be true. Okay, that, I think that's another argument that's been raised yeah. here to suggest the idea that children can include the singular child. Yeah, I agree that it can, and it does, but here's my question. In 1 Timothy 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, what would allow you in that particular context to use the plural children when the Greek text does have techno, which is a plural word there as well as Titus 1, what would allow us to 
uh, not take children in its first primary meaning, which would be two or more. Well, I think that uh, I think the same rules of grammar applied in Greek as they do in English. When I ask you, Nick, do you have children? If you were a man with one child, you would answer yes. That's the way we use terminology, and, and I think it's demonstrable. I think these Bible texts are demonstrating that that's the way that grammar was was used in the Scripture as well. So, I, in other words, it's not just that we're saying that's how we use language today although it is, we're also saying we're able to see in the Scriptures that that's how language is used in the Scriptures also. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm agreeing that the text of Genesis 21 that has been brought forth, as well as Matthew 22 and Deuteronomy 25, all those texts are texts that does tell us that we can and we do use it in the Scripture, but there's something about the text that allows you to do that. My question is, what in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 specifically would allow you to take the plural word children that is found there and apply it to the singular, just because you do in other texts. We wouldn't do that with other words like the word water, you know, sometimes when we talk about it. In some texts, we would find that it's talking, of course, figurative language, and at other times it's talking about literal. And and just because we can find it in one text, we wouldn't go to the other text and force it in that text. That's, that's the question that I'm raising. Well, I, pre- I appreciate your point. I understand your argument. I, I'd have to say at this point, anyway, I'm not in agreement, but I, I sure understand your argument, Nick. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Bye-bye. All right. Appreciate uh, appreciate Nick for uh, those thoughts. We're tonight. out of time, Jake. Uh, We've run we, out of time. We see people on both sides of the issue. It's certainly something that needs to be carefully studied and considered. Yeah, we got one more email here from Arthur who references, just gives us a Bible verse, First Chronicles 2, verse 31, the sons of Appium. Ishai and the sons of Ishai, Shishan, and the children of Shishan, Ale. So there's three guys mentioned, and it says they have sons, but it only names one, and children, and it only names one. So there's another Bible example of a passage where the word child, children includes the singular. So I think that's the, the point of that email from Arthur. And we have more emails that we're not going to be able to get to here. Yeah, the, we've got one from Marcus real quickly. Uh, Ignatius was the first man in church history that changed the office of a bishop by making the bishop greater than an elder. Uh, this is called the monarchical bishop in church history, and that led to the universal bishop. And so I think his email <coughs> is suggesting that the apostles, uh, that, that, that there was an alteration. Ignatius, Ignatius and Polycarp, Clement of Rome, were students of the apostles. According to the tradition, the apostles made them head bishop. Well, that's tradition. That's not Bible. He says, we trust these great men who died for the great faith, tra- uh, faithful tradition of the four gospels. We only know that the gospel writers wrote their gospels because of these men. Their gospels do not say they wrote it. Why should we reject the tradition when it comes to the monarchical bishop? After all, the apostles passed this down. Many things were passed down by the apostles that is not in the Bible. He's quoting some second century and later church writers, non-inspired, who who were in favor of a hierarchy of church government above the local congregational level with multiple plural elders in each local congregation. You can't find that in the Bible, Marcus. Now, you can find it in the writings of some of these others, but that they are not inspired men, and therefore we cannot take their word as being authoritative. We're going to have to, if you're going to have a hierarchy greater than multiple plural bishops in local congregations, you're going to have to find that in the Bible, and we haven't found that. It's not there. But I appreciate Marcus's email. All right, we may not ex- understand exactly what Marcus is getting at there, but uh, maybe some further discussion 
with him can help clarify that. Dad, well, we've had a good discussion tonight, a lot of interest. Uh, we have uh, definitely presented some things, Dad, that may prompt some further discussion in the future, but we yeah, appreciate we, it. we did not get to cover all the ground that we intended to cover tonight, but we had a lot of feedback, a lot of a lot of correspondence, and we appreciate that very much. And if you disagree with us, we'd like to have a further discussion with you. Let let us know your thoughts over email or over the phone, or leave us an audio comment on our website, and we can discuss this topic with you further. Dad, thank you for the time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Went pretty fast because we had a lot of response, and we appreciate that from everyone. You owe me a break next time, too. We didn't didn't get our allotted amount of breaks tonight. But thank you for your time on the virtual Bible study. We hope you benefited from our discussion of God's Word, certainly some things we should consider. And we hope you will consider being back with us next week at the same time for another edition of the virtual Bible study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.